on the show today, I have your responses to the universal basic income conversation. There's also a democratic civil war brewing, and Beto O'Rourke said something that showed some cognitive dissonance. That and more on today's Corey Truax Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be So, so many things to do on today's Corey Truax Show. We're going to dive into all of them, starting with your response to the universal basic income discussion from last week, and then another submitted listener question. We're going to, we're going to get started on that in just a moment, but first, my name is Corey Truax. We're dedicated to smarter, deeper, better talk about everything here on the Corey Truax Show, and if you are listening live on Saturday morning... Welcome. Glad you're here. Thanks for listening to his radio talk in 92.9 FM. And if you are out there listening on any of the various and sundry podcasting apps, I'm grateful for that too. Wherever you listen, it is deeply appreciated. It's also very surprising. Every time I open up my analytics and see people are listening, I go, wow, that's cool. People listen to me. Who would have thunk it? I would have never thought of it. I am also, by the way, the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets in Greenville, South Carolina on Sunday mornings at 1030. And we would love to have you any given Sunday morning at Beachwood Church. You can find us online at beachwood.cc. I want to start with from last week. I spent a good 15 minutes on this idea coming out of Silicon Valley called Universal Basic Income. It's now being talked about a little bit more on the campaign trail amongst some Democratic candidates. But still, this is more of a intelligentsia abstraction thus far. Now we have a couple folks who have put together a specific proposal for universal basic income being $1,000 a month to all adult Americans. It's something that could be more fleshed out and, uh, and debated. I was, if you recall from last week, undecided on it because my nature is such against, is so against any kind of government handout. And then you dig deeper and go, oh, so we're talking about not adding a government handout. We're actually just changing which ones we're doing. I think that's the best way to explain universal basic income, that except for Social Security, it is a replacement of everything else. It's a replacement of earned income tax credit, SNAP, Section 8 housing, all the other programs and if you, if you want more details, you can listen to the episode last week. And so I just wanted to get to three categories of response. I got several responses. I put them into three categories. First, maybe best uh, best articulated response was from my actual my own big brother and pastor at Beachwood Church. But several other people had a similar reaction. That reaction goes in the category of, if we're going to do social programs... This this thing, the universal basic income, it is the more logical way. It's the more equitable way. It's the mo. It's the more fair way. It. I, I forgot about this point. Someone brought up. Can't remember who brought up the point that basically, if you do twelve thousand dollars a year, that's the that is the uh, national poverty level, and so essentially you end poverty overnight. You have the potential, very strong potential, to end homelessness overnight with with its institution. And then you get into efficiencies uh, with all of the different verifications that have to take place. Someone else wrote about this. Verifying incomes and verifying who's looking for jobs and who's not looking for jobs. That just in general, you end up possibly being able to eliminate some bureaucracy because of 
a much more easy to administer program. And so while I had some folks who were, you know, I, I hate the idea of getting a check from the government because I, I do too. I had one person write in and say, I hate that idea. I hate the idea of the government depositing money in my account that's not my own. But when you are you put it up against in contrast to what we are doing now, you go, well, it is more efficient. It is more equitable. Uh, you even, I think, do away with some resentment. You know, one of the things left-wingers hate is the old Ronald Reagan quote about a welfare queen. All right, well, that's over. Every, everybody gets the same thing, all right? We have set up a social safety net. Instead of doing individual programs for individual people, it is one gigantic social safety net for everybody through a universal basic income of $1,000 a month. There, So there you go. You, you eliminate all of those things. I am leaning toward that camp. The more I think about it, I have to deal with the, the the reality in front of me. The reality in front of me is I don't like a government that is a welfare state, but I live in one. Of all the other governments in the world, I do prefer this one. I, I wouldn't mind living in some other places, but of the governments instituted by man, this is the best one. And this is not a great one. It should, it should tell you something about all the other governments instituted among mankind, that the United States of America happens to be the best one. But if we are going to live in a country with a welfare state, if we started from scratch today, if we started from scratch and said no welfare state exists, and there was one proposal that laid out Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, Section 8 housing, temporary assistance for needy families, unemployment insurance benefits, uh, what's, the other, what's the one called? Disability benefits. Uh, there's a bunch of other stuff I'm not thinking of. There's even help to pay for cell phones for people. Like, if there's there's a bunch of programs, veterans' benefits, and all of the bureaucracy and hun- probably 100,000, if not 100,000 close, of pe- people it takes in the federal government to administer all these programs, and then someone comes along and says, uh, how about $1,000 a month for everybody? Keep everybody technically out of poverty. It makes people more financially flexible. How about that? I think that idea would win out for its simplicity. And so if I have to live in a world where a safety net exists, I think that's the smarter one. So that was one category of response. Response two, I actually do want to read to you. It's from a really brilliant guy I know named Zach, and he wasn't the only one that wrote in with this opinion, uh, but I think he might have said it. He said it best. So from a Facebook message he sent me, I want to read to you verbatim. He starts, in a world, (laughs) makes me think of movie trailer language, in a world where food, clothing, shelter, I'm not going to do the whole thing that way, but he starts with in a world. In a world where food, clothing, shelter, and healthcare can be provided so cheaply that they're basically free, the humans that lost the jobs providing them will themselves not need their lost income to survive at the basic level. So he's talking about the ultimate consequence of why universal basic income came into being. The um, what happened with Silicon Valley coming up with this idea was that they are again trying to get us to a hundred percent unemployment. They said they want to create a world where the technology is so plenteous and, and so cheap and so awesome that none of us ever have to work again. And so I, I talked about how that's an, an issue both for meaning but also for income. And Zach makes a great point that if the technology actually does succeed after the the hard transition periods. Well, then, yeah, no one has a job, but everything's, everyone's okay with that because the technology has led to a, a, a decent level of living for everybody. 
He continues, I really, I really believe it will be the next large step in human civilization. And here's a great illustration he gives. Agriculture allowed us to settle in villages and form more stable societies, made mostly of farmers. Then advances in farming technology in the last century has enabled a relatively small handful of farmers to produce all of our food. And it freed up millions of individuals who would otherwise be in the fields to pursue other endeavors. And that's where he got me. Here's this great idea where it used to take a giant chunk of the population to feed all of us. It took a lot of people to do the farming to make sure we had enough food. And then we came up with genetically modified seeds and foods and better technology on how to till and prepare and refurbish fields. And uh, then other uh, insecticides, pesticides, we came up with ways to, uh, what's that called? It's a, it's a word for weather guard, where we can actually grow stuff that should not be able to grow in certain climates. Now we can grow them in those climates. The farming technology became such that we don't need that many people working the farms. You need fewer people to work. And that didn't cost everyone a job. It created opportunity for new jobs. It allowed people to go get creative and start their own businesses and get into other industries. And what the point Zach is making here is this unit, I think the point he's making is the universal basic income might be one of those things that just comes along with the technological revolution that leads us to a place of not actually needing to work to subsist. Last bit here. Okay, trying to find that message again from him. I think, oh yeah, here we go. Uh, I think we've only begun to scratch the surface to complexity, to the complexity that God has hidden in the universe. And the less of our collective time spent on building things for our basic needs, the more time we'll have for intellectual and philosophical pursuits. So this is a an argument of techno-optimism that as technology is going to end all of our jobs, that it's, it's not inherently a bad thing because all we're going to do is now spend that effort doing other worthwhile things and maybe things that are even more worthwhile and I think that does connect to an argument somewhat in favor of a universal basic income because it directs, it goes directly towards the, uh, the subsistence of people while we transition into that kind of world if it ever happens. So that was the second response. So first one, if we're going to have a system, a welfare system, might as well be that one. It's better than what we've got. And then there's a very techno-optimist response that is, yeah, I think it's, yeah, let's have it as a transition into what's going to be a new technological wondrous world. And then final response I got from people, well, man, I, I did get some people to say, no, just abolish all the government programs. And I, I'm basically for that with knowing there need to be a transition period and private industry, excuse me, private charity and churches coming along. I'd love to get our systems more localized where states, counties, and cities are doing the things we need to do to help people. It's, it's hard, to, hard to have a federal government that's trying to manage the help of people both in Fargo, North Dakota, and New York City. Like, these are very different places, and it should be done locally. But So I did have that group of people that said, just abolish everything. I got that. But the other category that I wanted to get to was one I think we need to bring up, which is, what lowers our debt? I had a group of people that said, well, you, you put it out there that it actually costs more. So if it's going to put us in more debt, I would rather stay with our current bad system than go with a, quote, more efficient system that still puts us in more debt. So my goal is just bring down the debt. And I get that too. I'm I'm there. We're, we're over 100% debt to GDP ratio. I'd like to get that down to 50%. Some debt is fine for a country. 
It just doesn't need to be 100% of your GDP. I think I even think it can be healthy at 60 or 70% of your GDP. It just can't be where we are now. It seems like neither party has any serious interest in actually bringing down the debt. And I will admit, I don't know that instituting the, the current policy before us of universal basic income or a UBI would help bring down the debt at all. There might be some way to modify it, leave some people out, and then it stops becoming universal. Then it becomes almost universal basic income. And uh, maybe that helps with bringing down the debt. So uh, that's whole first segment on responding to your responses from last week. I'm still interested in your thoughts. You can call in on the Anchor app if you want to leave that in audio form, or you can send more thoughts to Corey Truax Show at gmail.com, Corey Truax Show at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or that is all, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just look for me, Corey Truax. You will find me there. When we come back, one more listener question, and we'll get on to the news on the Corey Truax Show. Welcome back to the Corey Act Show. I'm glad you're here. If you would be so kind, find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Like the the fan, Facebook fan page or follow on Insta. If you want to follow on Twitter, I really don't like Twitter, but that's helpful if you, when you do that. Also, wherever you listen, if you are listening on to one of the podcast apps, anytime you rate or review the podcast, it helps other people find it. And if you're listening live on his radio talk, 92.9 FM, Super glad you're there, too, live on Saturday morning. One more listener question comes from Sarah. Sarah asks, I'm not going to read it verbatim. It's kind of long. Sarah asks basically this. When she was growing up, it was a normal part of sermons in her church for for the pastor that they were under to preach towards the end of having moms in the home that one of the illustrations often given, one of the points that used to be apparently quite focused on by pastors in some denomination was how mom needs to be in the house, not working, how wives need to be in the house and not working. And she asks, whatever happened to this? Why is this no longer a an emphasis in churches that we would encourage women to be moms first? I'm about to tread really lightly. And for the record, I did not bring this up. This is a woman, uh, not uh, this is not a, uh, I'm not even going to try to put an age on her. This is a, a woman. This is a woman bringing this up. And I think it's a worthwhile question, and I will be careful with it. One, I tend not to want to judge anybody's lifestyle choices except by Scripture. Now, my character is to judge everybody. I'm super judgmental. It's not a good thing. It's just how I am. But my standards are not the law. My standards and how I think things should be, that's not how we should judge people. So I look to Scripture and ask, is there a demand that a woman be in the home? And I just can't find it. Whether she has kids or not... even a woman with kids, I can't find a command for that. So I wouldn't put that law on anybody. For the pastor of a church to encourage it, I would hope he would do that with a great deal of grace, but also with some rec- some recognition that he can't give out that law. 
to say that, Mom, you're important. And to, and, and to even maybe give this challenge. Hey, Mom and Dad, you live at this level. You're, you have this standard of living. And it requires that both of you work 40 or 50 hours a week. And you've got some kids that are primarily being cared for by others while you two work your 40 or 50 hours a week. There's room for a pastor to say, could you consider as an application point of God's design in the family that the family is a good gift, that wives are a great gift to husbands and husbands are a great gift to wives and children are a legacy and a treasure? For a pastor to come out of one of those passages and say, are you valuing your lifestyle? Are you valuing your, uh, your, your wealth more than you are God's good design for the family and the value God has put on your family? That is an acceptable thing, I think, for a pastor to do because uh, that's just that's probing the heart for idols. What do you value? What are you, what are you allowing to drive your decisions? And if it's my desire for more stuff or uh, because we want to feel the security of saving for this kind of retirement or something, then sure, there's some challenge there I would give to a family not to send, get your wife back to, to the office. I'm, that, that family might decide, well, the best thing actually is for, excuse me, get your wife back to the house, to the household. The best decision for that family might be for the husband to go home and for the wife to continue earning income while he takes care of the house. I can't find any kind of biblical prohibition against that setup. So the uh, with, to the answer for Sarah, th- maybe some people don't bring it up because they're they're sc- like they're scared as I am right now talking about it. I am super nervous uh, about how uh, the words I'm using right now and who I'm going to offend. And because I, I also don't want to put a burden on. I have some ladies that listen. I have some young married ladies that listen that work. I don't want to discourage them. They're not doing anything wrong. But I, so that's the only challenge I could give is uh, we're living in a world where it's hard to live in a one-income household. It's not impossible, it's hard. But in that one-income household where, where a family has decided it's important to us, it doesn't have to be important to everybody else, it's important for us for there to be one parent at home, that usually does require that family to make some hard decisions about things they're not going to do and some fun stuff they're not going to have and maybe vacations that won't be as lavish or maybe those vacations, those, those vacations don't happen at all. Because they've made a choice about what they value, and I don't want to judge anyone that makes a different decision unless that decision is, I can actually show from Scripture, is sinful. I'm going to quit talking about that because I'm getting really nervous about how far I am going up to the line of wrecking somebody's day and then getting a bunch of mad emails. I don't really mind angry emails, but I don't want them if they're undeserved. All right, so moving on. First political topic of the day. I was listening to a lot of these the Democrats that are running for president. Specifically, Beto O'Rourke said, said something that set me off on this track. And it, it occurs to me that there is an odd cognitive dissonance going on with all the Democratic candidates, and that I think is happening largely with the American political left. And if I'm thinking about this unfairly, to the few left-wingers that listen, I'll, I, I will stand corrected. I, I can do that. Just let me know how I'm wrong. But here's what I picked up. Beto O'Rourke was down on the border, and he said the words that America was built on white supremacy. 
said those words, which of course is absurd, it's dumb, it's historically illiterate. The, the, the fabric, the intellectual fabric on which America was built was individualism, it was property rights, it was sovereignty of the individual over their own labor, wealth, that we, and that we wanted to be, uh, we, we wanted this independence. That's the big words, liberty and independence. There's a reason white supremacy and nothing about race comes up in those documents of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. We're not built on white supremacy. There was ungodly, immoral, horrible racism throughout the founders and the founding era around the world, not just in the United States during that time period. But no, the country's not built on white supremacy. It wasn't a country where the guys got together and said, well, we need a white country. That's not a thing that happened. So he's historically incorrect. But he was sitting there on the border talking about immigration and said, we are built on white supremacy. He said it permeates all of our institutions. So here he is talking to an audience that's primarily not white. He's saying, this country is terrible for non-white people. And then he says to the non-white people, you should all be able to come in. Wait, what? If this country is so hard for non-white people, why do you want those non-white people here? Why do you hate them so much, Beto? And it's not even just Beto O'Rourke, or Robert O'Rourke, as I like to call him. That should be a cognitive dissonance that every Democratic candidate feels. They are making two simultaneous arguments that don't work. One argument is, this country's terrible. Everything's bad, even when it's objectively not the case. Like, economically right now, things are very good. But they make statements about the quality of life and how bad things are here. And then, when they talk about immigration or refugees, and I'm super pro-refugee, they talk about asylum seekers. I'm very much pro-asylum seeker. People on the right tend not to like me because I am I'm very pro uh, I'm, I'm, I am, again, if we didn't have a welfare state, I'll be very much for way more open movement across borders. But you have the Democrats saying both things. This country is terrible, but then also when they talk about immigration, this country is the only hope for some people. We're a shining beacon of freedom on a hill, and we should welcome in these immigrants from all over Latin America and throughout the world. I thought you just said it was a terrible place for them that we were all going to be super racity racist, right? And so they need to pick one. Either America is a hellscape, and Amer- an immigrant shouldn't even want to come here, or America's great. It's a cool place, and it's, it's a worthwhile place to try to get to. And then we need to work with immigrants that are trying to get here. Like, you got to pick one of those. You can't have both. America is terrible, and no one should come. Or America is gr- America's great, and we should find a way to... Try to have more people take part in the awesome thing that is America. There was a thing recently in the New York Times. They published uh, an op-ed, an opinion editorial, with the title, America is just okay. And so then they go through all their statistics of how America is just average. It's an okay place. It's not special. And uh, I mean, I read the whole thing. It's I understand some of the argument there. I just look through human history and I go, you you can complain about some stuff going on here. I, I've got plenty of complaints. But no, we're not just okay. There's a reason we have a border crisis. 
People want to be here because it's awesome. There's a reason we have, or some bad reasons we have an immigration, quote, crisis in terms of people overstaying visas and just, uh, it's really, it's a really terrible system. We have our own problems with it, but one of the causes is so many people around the world know this is where you come from opportunity. Yeah, we're not just okay. There is American exceptionalism. I remember when Barack Obama was asked that question and he said, yeah, I believe in American exceptionalism. I believe it like I believe those in Iceland will think about Icelandic exceptionalism. Or those in Great Britain will think about British exceptionalism. No. No, I'm telling you we actually are exceptional. And I only can say that because of all the record of our country. For 200 and some odd years, what, 1787 is when we had the Constitution. So since then, 1789 is when it was ratified. This 200 and some odd year run we've been on, it's extraordinary. It's incredible. And it's not just okay. So to those Democrats making that argument, I would say to them, yeah, America's awesome. People should want to come here. We should try to make it better. Not America's terrible and people should want to come here. Uh, Next up. You know, we'll stay with politics for just one more second. There is a democratic civil war brewing, and I'll admit, I find it hilarious, and that the people that are the victims of it kind of deserve it. And there's sometimes this stuff, kind of stuff happens to Republicans, and I, I'll admit, I enjoy it, because Republicans have been quite the disappointment. I mean, they're, they say conservative things during... Uh, campaigns they do very few conservative things like i've I, I have not minded when republicans have gotten their deserved comeuppance and the same thing applies here with some deserved comeuppance here on the left nancy pelosi has been annoyed really by the the new the new blood of the democratic party she's been annoyed by alexandria ocasio cortez and she's been annoyed by rashida talib and the other freshman Congress people that have been so left-wing. And Nancy Pelosi is annoyed by them because she's fairly smart. She's a left-wing nut job, but she's politically savvy. savvy. And she recognizes that when they won the majority in 2018, the people who won the general elections, the, the Democrats who beat Republicans, were fairly moderate Democrats in their language and the policy proposals they put forward. They weren't nut jobs like Cortez and Rashida Tlaib in that group. And so Pelosi is wise. This is not good for Republicans because she is smart. She goes to try to mitigate the voices of the crazy left-wingers because she knows that her majority is because they won some seats in North Carolina and Florida and Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin that are very much not blue districts. They're not red. They're genuinely purple. And Republicans had been there, and Republicans could just easily swing back if... Voters in those districts think that Democrat, the Democratic Party is crazy left-wing. And so Pelosi wisely wants those crazy left-wing voices to be minimized. And then Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says that she finds it troubling that Nancy Pelosi seems to be targeting these members of these young members of color. So she implies the old white lady, Nancy Pelosi, is super de duper racist. And what the left has done to that term, racism, becomes quite tragic. Because now race racism just means not as liberal as I am. 
And so <laughs> Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez can call Nancy Pelosi racist. That's, that's what she did there. She implied it. She implied that Nancy Pelosi is singling us out because we are people of color, not because of our ideas, not because that we know nothing. It's because we are people of color. Nancy Pelosi has singled us out for, for, uh, for, for ridicule. It's because she's racist. And this is what the left deserves. You guys have turned that term into meaning whatever you want, and now that it means not as liberal as I am, you deserve to have to fight this fight because you caused it. You caused this madness around intersectionality, and a left-wing war is is deserved. It's even happening with their presidential race in Joe Biden. Joe Biden is historically quite liberal. Nancy Pelosi is quite liberal. But consider the weird world I'm in, where I am one of the most conservative Americans there is. I'd like to put me in the top 1% of most individual liberty, uh, limited government, private property, Second Amendment rights, pro-life. Like, I am really conservative. And here I am, kind of feeling bad for Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi because their party has gone insane. It's gone so insane that they think Pelosi and Biden, Nancy Pelosi, who ushered in the Affordable Care Act, Joe Biden, vice president to left-wing golden boy Barack Obama, these two people are way too conservative for some Democrats. And that's hilarious. It's a very funny story. Okay. Uh, that's I'll continue to monitor that as time goes by to see what, uh, what else happens there in the Democratic Civil War. Next up, yeah, this is a, this is a good transition. It's a political story, but also theological, which is where I prefer to live anyway. There's a guy going around now called Brandon Straka. He started a hashtag called WalkAway. And he he's doing the easy thing. It's the easiest way to become a political celebrity. It's convert. Be a right-wing person who turns left, or be a left-wing person who turns right, and you get to be a celebrity. This actually happened with Ed Schultz. I doubt you remember him. He was a really untalented person uh, on MSNBC, and he used to do conservative talk radio. And in that conservative talk radio world, uh, he wasn't very good, not that popular, and so it came to a spot where he knew he wasn't going to break through, and so he started saying liberal things. And then he wrote a book about how he was leaving the right wing and he was going to go left, the left wing. And he got a a little bit of an audience because people love those convert stories. If you're on the left, you want to see a right winger convert. If you're on the right, you want to see a left winger convert. And Brandon Strzok is out there giving uh, giving these interviews and writing the book called Why I Left the Left. And uh, so anyway, I've been monitoring a little bit of that. In the way, he seems to be super in love with the president, too. Like, he's a big fan of the president out of nowhere. And I just think it's a cynical thing that he's done to make some money. I know I could have done that, too. It's probably, if I had, like, consultants, that's what they would have told me to do back in 2016. The the thing to be to get some, to get some attention in conservative media was a Trump cheerleader or especially a Trump convert. And I've gone through this, through this with a lot of you. I lost a lot of listeners. Like, I I was growing, guys. It was going pretty well. 
And then the Trump thing happened, and I refused to budge on individual character being something that should matter in leadership. And a bunch of people got mad, and I lost them. And I, I'm not, I'm really not sad about it. I would rather have my integrity and two people listen than not have my integrity and sell my soul. But that's what I could have done, what this Brandon Straka guy did. Just come out and say, hey, look who I'm for now. And then you, you're basically paraded around as a scalp that the other side won. And it's just kind of gross. So I've been following Brandon Strzok a little bit, and it led me to some conservative – oh, I can't even call it that. It led me to some Trump cult media that is uh, – I met a super weird guy into that weird Trump media world. To give you a teaser, one of them said that Donald Trump is a biblical judge, like from the book of Judges. I will talk about that when we come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show. I made no bones about my feelings regarding the current president of the United States back in the campaign days. And I suffered the consequences, no doubt. And I've also been really clear about how pleasantly surprised I've been with the policy we've gotten out of the administration. The behavior has still not been great. I could itemize it, but it's not been good. It's still, uh, who said this recently? Me doing things off the top of my head is always such a terrible idea. Someone said recently, the, the president's effect on the institutions of the country are going to be a lot longer lasting than the good effects in the economy. And that's true. I think the institutions of the country, the ideals and public discourse, how we think about our government and uh, ethics, like all of the institutions, and I mean, even the effect on the media, but the media deserved a lot of what it got. I mean, the media has been corrupt for a long time. So uh, I've been really transparent, I think, all the way around. Um, the the dude is a bad guy. He's a bad person. And then also we've gotten some very conservative policy, arguably the most conservative administration, except for Reagan. I don't think it's quite as conservative as Reagan's because of these very dumb tariffs. But it's uh, it's been good. Like it's been a it's been a pleasant surprise that it's worked out okay that it's worked out okay. Now, I've also been mostly upset with my Christian brothers and sisters who tend to fanboy around the president. You remember those like those Obama fans like you would see at the rallies. You had that woman who was like, "I'm not gonna have to worry about paying for gas in my car anymore. I'm not to worry about paying the mortgage." And I was like, "Wait, what? Why? Because he won." And you had the the folks who, who like say they would pass out. They were so excited, like like Barack Obama was a like a rock star. The issue is, I have a lot of Christian brothers and sisters who do that with this president, despite the character flaws. Treat him like he's a really big deal, an awesome guy, and it's it's troubling. So in that vein, as I was doing some research on this walk away guy, I ran into some very weird Christian media. And I ran into a guy who makes the argument that God is using Donald Trump as a judge. There's a book of Judges. If you remember the theme, the theme of the book of Judges is everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. 
And the cycle goes that God raises up a judge to defeat Israel's enemies. Israel repents, follows after one true God, Yahweh. And then after some time goes by, they fall back into their pattern of sin and idolatry. They're taken over by another group and so on and so on. We go through the cycles. And this guy's argument is that that's who Donald Trump is because the, the judges were often not laudable characters. The judges were often bad people or unfaithful people. So he went through, like, Gideon has no faith, and Samson was this terrible person. Uh, and he went through some others that's, that we think we know about. There's like 16, I think, judges. And so that's what, that's what Donald Trump is. He's a judge. Okay, let me, let, me, let me pull back on that just a little. This is where I do get nervous. Like, I'm super glad about my tax cut, and I am very glad about uh, the first judge we got. Not as happy about Kavanaugh, but uh, the, the first one was great. Gorsuch, yep. Uh, I am very glad about uh, over 100 judges having been confirmed, and most of those judges being great throughout the federal judiciary. Like, I'm not complaining about any of that. Super excited about it. Woohoo! Very happy. I get nervous. Because Donald Trump's going to go away one day. That should be good news for all of us. And then the church has to go on. right? So Christianity was here before him, and it needs to be here after him. And sullying the name of the Lord and the book from which we learn about that Lord with a real estate mogul who pioneers pornography, yeah, we probably shouldn't do that. It's not very helpful. And so... This judge thing, I, I want to respond to it because it's new, right? The, the, th- the thing of the campaign was, well, King David. King David did all the terrible stuff. He was a bad guy, and God, God used him. Yeah, David repented as well. So that's actually the, the entire Psalm 51 is how sad he is about his own sin. He did it a lot. So anyway, I won't re- relitigate that piece of theology that was so stupid that he was King David. I am okay with the person who says, well, Donald Trump is like a judge in the Bible, and God's using him to do some good things, just like God used flawed people and judges to do good things. Okay, cool. I am cool as long as you are consistent. Just the same thing I had with David. As long as you are willing to say, you know who else? God is the flawed person that God uses to do that which he wills. Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, Vladimir Putin, King Jean, Kim Jong-un, Angela Merkel, or Angela, however you say her name. In the realm that we recognize that all governments are ordained of God, they are there because God allows them to be, then yeah, sure, I'm cool. We can call Donald Trump that. But when, when, when you do this in a way that two things are unique, where you think America's unique, God is dealing with us differently than he is with the Ugandans or the Moroccans or the Chinese or the Ukrainians. Does God love the Ukrainians more than he loves Americans or vice versa? Does God love Americans more than Canadians? Why? This is a weird world that you've created. So that God is dealing with us differently than he would everyone else. If you're dealing with that, we've got a problem. And then if you're dealing with his personality differently than you are with everyone else, like, Donald Trump is God's chosen man, but no one else is. All right, now you're insane. Now you've gone off a theological deep end. Now you're getting close to heresy, and it's not good. And so I heard that argument, wanted to respond to it. Sure, 
Donald Trump is like a biblical judge in the book of Judges, but only if every governmental executive, every leader in place, is you're, you're giving them all the same treatment. If you're not, then you've got an ideology problem and you have a giant theological problem as well. All right, to another story. NBC News had a story recently about South Carolina teachers because South Carolina teachers are some of the lowest paid in the entire Southeast. They did a story on how there uh, is uh, how they're making ends meet. So that was that was really the theme of the story was uh, South Carolina teachers are having to work second jobs to and they kept saying make ends meet. And so they followed around two people, Meredith Blackwood and Chanson Blackwood, which by the way, he's a North Greenville University grad, go Crusaders. They work down in the Lexington School District. They're both teachers. They work, uh, they're the regular, uh, let me find the, I uh, can't, and the story's on NBC News. Together, they were earning, third, I think $35,000 a year is for both. Uh, no, she makes 36, he makes 35. So they are a $70,000 a year uh, couple. And they're, the story's about how they work overnight or late shifts at a local drug company uh, t- called Nephron Pharmaceuticals. They're, it's in West Columbia. Uh, they work part-time doing lots of different things with the drugs that are being, or the syringes that are being shipped out of there. It's a factory job. They put on the same the kind of factory work you would expect on an assembly line, and so they're teaching in the day, and then some hours they are working factory. The story gave me, this is from Glenn, by the way, who sent it in, so thanks to him, several different reactions. First, I don't like the headline. Headline is school by day, assembly line by night. How teachers in South Carolina make ends meet. And they kept using that language throughout the story that basically teachers are in poverty. But I hate to do this, but I'm going to be really clear here. It's what I do. A $70,000 household is a pretty decent household in South Carolina. If you have two incomes... And you're not you don't not living outside of your means. You can live really well here, even in Charleston or Greenville, which is higher cost than Columbia. And Columbia's pretty high cost. Seventy grand for a household will be fine, even in that particular family. And I don't want to be a jerk. I mean, they're, they're, one of these guys is from my alma mater. We might have gone to school together. I mean, he's thirty. I'm thirty three. We might have been there at the same time. But they have one of them. I think had fifteen thousand dollars in student loans. That's half of what I graduated with. I. I'm trying to think of a way that 70 grand in the household means you can't make ends meet. It makes me actually want to say, because I'm a finance guy. I, I, I love finance. I love to do budgets. I actually have done this with a few families. I sit down with them. They've opened up to me really uh, transparently, and we've worked on their budget together and seen where they were wasting money and try to manage the household better. I am not saying that's the case with this one family or any of the people in the story. But I would say, if you were making 70 grand, if your household has 70 grand in it, you have no kids, and it's uh, you're a dink, you're a dual-income, no-children household. That's the tax language for it. Dual-income, no kids. You're a dink. A dink family. You're doing well. I'd love to know why you're struggling so much. Like, I want to see what's going on there. And then the rest of that story 
has people in the same situation. They are teachers, and they're working part-time at Nephron, this pharmaceutical company. And if you actually read what they say, it's, well, I wanted to put some money away for retirement. I'm trying to save money for this vacation. Uh, we, uh, we thought we could just make some extra money for this, this, other, this other thing they're trying to do, or retirement. So that's not make ends meet. That's not what's happening there. Now, it's, it, we, we do pay teachers too little, but nevertheless, the headline doesn't match the reality. If a, if a couple has $70,000 in it uh, per year in their household, they're actually doing great. And if, a, if someone is working a second job to make money for extra things, like that's what I do some of my second stuff for. I have my primary job, pays all the bills, and enough to save a little and invest a little. And then I do some extra stuff to save up so I can hit, hit my New York City trips or uh, maybe want to put some extra in retirement or something. Like, this is this is how a lot of people live. I mean, it's not... Uh, the, the story's headline, some of the language talks about it very in a very dire way, but it's not... It's not accurate to the actual sh- people in the story. And it also hit me while, while I was reading it for some of those people. Like, why don't you just quit being a teacher... And work at Nephron. If the place is so awesome, go there full time. And then you you, well, you have good-hearted people. That's what you find in the story is our teachers in South Carolina are, at a great clip, good people. And they want to teach. They want to serve our kids, which is the last part of this conversation for me. I loved seeing the story. There was an NGU grad who's coaching football and teaching, and he and his wife are serving the school there. And then I, I see that there's people like teachers – not necessarily needing a second job, but doing this job to make some extra money. But even in that realm, I would say we do need to pay teachers more. Thirty-five grand a year. One was making thirty-five. One was making thirty-six. You can live in South Carolina for that salary. You're not living super. You're not living easily though. It's not. Li- you're not living in a way that's uh, certainly not any kind of glamour. On thirty, uh, on thirty-five or thirty-six, especially if you are coming out with student loans, it is doable. I know it's do it's doable, but it it requires some sacrifice. I think one of the things that, that troubles me for my age group is this: it's I feel like my for my group, I'm in my early thirties, that we see how our parents are living in their fifties and sixties, and we want to know why we can't live that way yet. Well, I'm probably, I wouldn't doubt I'm actually more financially stable. And I think most of the guys I know my age than our parents were at our age. Life's in one way a vapor, another way financially. Life's often long. It's a, it's a slow, it's a slow process, especially financially. But we do need to pay, to pay teachers more, especially for this reason, uh, the, the bigger places. If you're living in Charleston or Greenville or Columbia in the state, you're like, the idea of living on thirty-five grand a year, that's going to be super hard. You're probably going to have to go out of Greenville, out of Columbia, out of Charleston to live and then commute in because of the way that housing costs are right now and all that. So it's an interesting story out there on, on from NBC about South Carolina teachers. I'd like to see us be more strategic and let's go with uh, I'm, I'm fine with strategic about how, how we determine pay for teachers. 
I'd like it to happen by county or even by zip code. Uh, that's another th- great idea. Glenn texted me this week, same same person on the in that same text thread, was indexing the minimum wage to inflation. I've I've been saying that for 15, literally for 15 years. I've said we should do that because it takes the issue away from Democrats. Democrats love not having it all, uh, indexed to inflation because they can keep bringing it up. Keep bringing it up so you can use it as a as a campaign issue. When you go ahead and set it to inflation, you can't use it as a campaign issue anymore. But so same thing here with teachers. If you are a teacher in Abbeville making thirty five grand a year, you're doing just fine. But if you are a teacher trying to teach in Charleston County, if you're trying to teach at JL Mann High School and live around, you know, Malden or Simpsonville making thirty six, thirty seven grand a year, you can't do that. It's not a it's not a possible a possibility. You're going to end up living down in, down in Fountain Inn or something and driving up. And so that's how these teacher wages should partly work, is just knowing where they are, not rewarding how long you've been there, but rewarding how effective you've been in any event. It is an interesting story, and I would encourage you to go read it for the teachers. Uh, and that, and those, that's, those are my ideas on how we should go about uh, determining how much we're paying them. I really wanted to get – I'll have a minute. I have a, Yeah, I have one minute. Let me do this. There has been the stories here recently, my final thing for today, the big uh, R. Kelly story, who's arrested for sex crime type charges, and this Jeffrey Epstein with his absolute pedophilia. And these are uh, causing outrage in the culture, and it should. There should be outrage around this. But I'll probably spend some more time on this next week. I want to focus on this gentleman that listen. For all the outrage we're showing those two guys, for having purchased women, basically, using women as products. I want to spend some time next week making sure we all understand that men do this every day in something called pornography, where they purchase women, and they traffic women through pornography. It's, it's been one of my pet peeves for a long time. I think we'll try to get into that a little bit more next week. We've just run out all out of time, so I can't do it. Find the show on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and then share the show with others. I'd greatly appreciate it. We'll be back with another new edition next week. Until then, peace and love.